Be Fabulous with Vibs and Vicky, the ThinkShift podcast for professionals who aspire to be fabulous leaders, those who not only succeed, but also purposefully seek to reinvent the world. Welcome to the Be Fabulous podcast, episode 10. Vicky turns the table on Vips and probes into the Vips why. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to episode nine of Be Fabulous. In this episode, we are going to continue exploring our whys. In the last episode, I got to tell my story. And in this one, I get revenge. I get to interview Vips. <laughs> revenge, Vips. revenge seems like <laughs> this is exactly how I feel right now. I'm tense. <laughs> ah, relax into it, my friend. So um, I know our listeners are super curious as to your why and why, why are you doing what you're doing? We know a little bit more about why I'm doing what I'm doing. But uh, why don't we start with uh, your younger years, Vips, growing up in, in London uh, to, to Indian parents. Tell us a little bit about your story growing up. Hmm. I trust you to go right to the heart of it, right, right to the beginning. Um, well, I, I, grew up in, I grew up in London. Um, in a, in a place called Archway, North London, which um, you know, is still not perhaps the nicest part of London, um, although the areas around it have been gentrified nicely right now. But it was it was quite it was a very urban environment, and it was very close to the tube station, very multicultural. Um, but it was raw. It was raw. I do remember. I mean, overall, I have nothing but fond memories of Archway. But I do remember when I was younger. You know, you know, it's very topical right now. It did feel like quite a racist environment. You know, I was the only, you know, I was only the, I think one or two, you know, Indian, Asian kids in, in our school, let alone in our class. And, uh, you know, I used to get, you know, people walk past you and you know, scream packy at you and spit at you and, and stuff like that, which was, I have to tell you, I, I think about it more now than I ever did then. You know, it was just, mm. it was just what you accepted and moved on. But, um, so yeah, but grew up very loving family. We were, um, you know, very very humble place. My, you know, three sisters growing up, other baby. Um, in you know, in Indian families, it's a big deal when you're the son. And I was like, you know, the son after you know, after three failed attempts, they had a son. <laughs> <laughs> My sisters will laugh when they hear this. Um, but it was it was definitely an aspect of that. So I was spoiled rotten basically by um, not not just. Uh, you know, not just my mother and father, but also by my sisters who, you know, one of which is old enough to be my mother. So, um, what is the age difference between your sisters? And uh, elder sister and me, I think 16 years. Mm. Um, and 16, then it would be 12 and then it would be eight to put into perspective for you. So they really were trying for a son. Uh, or it was an accident. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> or they'd given up trying. <laughs> who knows? But, you know, what is interesting, though, is um, I always, they, they used to call us the Kenyavala, which basically means the people from Kenya, okay? So my sis, my dad and my, um, well, my whole family, really, they, they spent many, many years in Kenya. They only came to London in, I think it was 71, and I was born in 73. So I, I don't have that sort of Kenyan birth, if you like. So your sisters, your sisters all had that as yeah. the early part of it. In Nairobi, yeah. They were all born in Nairobi. Um, you know, fair amount of schooling in, in, in Nairobi too. My dad had a shop in Nairobi too. He was, a, he was an upholsterer. He used to restore, amongst other things, antique race cars, like, you know, like leather trim, like hand-stitching leather trim inside sports cars. Um, he, was a, he was a real craftsman, superstar performer who never grew up. Um, <laughs> so, Phipps, if you had been born in Africa, we would have had that in common. I know. I know. We've been Africans together. We would have been Africans together. <laughs> Might never have met though. Um, yeah. But yeah. Nairobi and South Africa. Nairobi and South Africa. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where to go with that. Really. I guess it was. Well, a, um, we went to. You know, I went to the local school. You know, it was a state school. I'm guess. I'm guessing you're some kind of troublemaker. My, my troublemaking years were more secondary school. Um, I wasn't really a troublemaker in primary school. It was a bit of a goody two shoes, really. Yeah. Just getting by, really. I was. Mm. I was. I was lucky though. I was one of these people who was just good with good with exams. So I didn't really have to study so hard, but uh, but I also didn't read much, which now makes perfect sense. You know, 
40 years later or 50, you know, well, 35 years later, finding out you're, you're dyslexic. But at the time, we didn't know. So how did you get by? Because there's a certain amount of reading that, that school systems pride themselves on. It's, this is true. And I, I think what I used to do was just figure out how to read like only the bits that really mattered. So I guess I'm a, I, I guess what, what in today's language you would say a good skim reader. For me, skim reading is the only reading um, mm, because mm. it's so painful. So I, I just got quite good at knowing how to read the beginning of paragraphs and the end of paragraphs and judging whether there was something in there that required me to read or just move on. So I, I learned algorithmically, really. Now that I think about it, I, I learned how to get by using rules rather than by getting good with reading, which is weird because everyone in my family is readers, everybody, like, you know. My sister used to, you know, she used to have a different book in her dressing gown, a different book, you know, there's books everywhere in our mm -hmm. household, but that wasn't me. I was, uh, yeah, probably, so your... probably, probably was more like the, how do I get the most of what I need by doing as little as possible? <laughs> I probably <laughs> fell into that category. And did very well off that. And how, how would your um, sisters describe you as a, as a youngster at that age? Strong-willed caring but sometimes just inconsiderate <laughs> i guess um spoil maybe spoil again perhaps spoil again <laughs> I, I, I i used to get i used to get a lot of i used to get a lot of uh, all the things that you get that we never had you know mm -hmm. and it's because you're the boy you're the son they, they, they never quite they, i don't think they ever quite relate to the fact that it's because we would just probably a little bit better off we're richer <laughs> yeah, yeah um, living in a something different to do with country. it too but um, yeah, so it's kind of all relative. But, and then yeah. when your dad was in England, he did some really interesting work. Oh yeah, he yeah. My dad, he, he came over, you know, he went, they, they had to leave with virtually nothing. So he left behind his business and everything. It was one of those, you know, come to the country with five pounds kind of stories. And um, he, when he landed, he started working in uh, Peter Jones in Sloan Square, which Peter Jones became part of the John Lewis but I, I, I don't think it was at the time. And he was an upholsterer. So I remember that, Peter Jones. It was very uh, yes. prestigious. Yeah. It's still there, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, yeah, he, he was basically an upholsterer for them. So he used to, you know, do loose covers and armchairs and, and curtains and this kind of thing. And um, just as a, basically as an employee. And then um, there was a lady, uh, her name, I remember her well, her name was Miss Bravo. And... Uh, she, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's kind of like before I was born, she kind of took a, took a shine on my dad and told him he should go and do his own thing. Like, you know, be his own single shingle or one man show, if you like. And, um, and so he did with the support of uh, really my mum. My mum was the strong person in our family. My dad was not <laughs> from that point of view. My dad was a hard worker, but he wasn't very good with difficult decisions. Whereas my mum was very, very good with difficult decisions. Um, but, but she, uh, she wanted, hold on, I've got to tell you the story because it's funny. So she wanted to be my godmother, right? And then she was a very, very rich, aristocratic woman. And so, but they wouldn't let her be my godmother because my parents didn't know what being a godmother was. And that wasn't an Indian thing, right? That was a, that was a Christian thing. They didn't understand it. So apparently when I was born, like, you know, Miss Bravo sent like a pram and a bassinet oh, and wow. all this really, really high-end stuff. And I could have been silver spooned right at the beginning because she wanted to be my godmother but my parents said no and therefore i grew up relatively poor when i could have grown up <laughs> rich oh well did, did you ever get in <laughs> did you ever get in touch with her uh, miss i i, I didn't because by the time i found out about miss Brava, i was a lot older i think she passed away so um in, oh, yeah perhaps you could have got into her will i Maybe I am. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe at some point, some uh, some lawyer will turn up and say, "Hey, someone bequeathed you something. You just didn't know your name or something." I don't know. Now your dad had some famous clients, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he, he did some stuff for Bob Geldof. He 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 did some he did some stuff at the palace, the real palace. Um, the Queen. Yeah, I but yeah, I don't think he met her. To be fair, but um, but yeah, he he. he uh, you know, he was a craftsman. So the thing was, if you're, if you're restoring a, you know, $10,000 chair and you're taking the tapestry off and you're putting the same tapestry back on and using the same upholstery nails, I mean, that's, this, is, this is meticulous stuff. It's a, mm -hmm. you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not production work. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, I remember that was so funny. People used to want him to 
do this work. So we used to, when we grew up in our house, like they, they couldn't get it done by anyone else. So this furniture used to come to our house, like an armchair or something. And we'd have it for a year, two years, when it would just become part of our furniture. It's like, dad, are you ever actually going to do this? Are you going to actually? And it, it was, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't one of the most organized of people. Um, but, but his clients, they, they tolerated it. Well, what are they going to do? They can't get it done anywhere else. Um, but it was funny. It was, you know, now I'm thinking back. I mean, seriously, there was one, one sort of armchair come sofa, like a love seat, that we must have had for about five years. <laughs> just well, like it's part you, of our furniture. It shows you the power of a truly unique proposition. Yeah. Yeah, but he, 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 yeah. And we used to be like his, uh, like when people used to phone, right? He, he, he was always out or working or whatever. So we used to basically be his secretaries, right? Me and my sisters. And so it was, <laughs> we used to just have to deal with people screaming. It was, it was like being in a call center where, or a Good banking experience. environment. Yeah, but it was always, he's not there right now. Will you get him to call? I, said, I will ask him to call you. She goes, you should know. I used to, I used to end up just saying, look, I'll ask him. I'll, 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 I'll I'll write it down on notes. I'll tell him tonight, but I have no idea if he's going to call you back or not because he never, he was, you know, he was a, he was a true craftsman, right? He, yeah, the yeah, artist, yeah, yeah, yeah. he, he yeah. did what he wanted to when he wanted to. And, and you either liked it and you could live with it or you didn't like it and, and you'd go somewhere else, but no one ever did, would seem. So. That's amazing. So what about secondary school? You hinted at perhaps you weren't as much of a goody two shoes in yeah. secondary school. Secondary school is a bit about survival. I went to a pretty bad school. I mean, so bad that it's now closed down because there were too many people like getting killed. You oh know, boy. it was so it was rough. In school. a inner city London school. Inner city London Roman Catholic school. I hasten to add. But to be fair, you know, I, I mean, nothing but good memories. I, I met, you know, Carla, my wife. Um, mm -hmm. When you guys you know, were eleven, right? When we got when we were eleven, yeah, we were in the, we weren't in the same class that year. But then what happened? What well, they did after the first year? So in in the UK, you start at eleven secondary school, eleven age. Um, and that first year, we were in different classes. And what they did was this school just got lucky. Apparently, there were enough kind of like semi bright kids that they decided to make one class of us from the second year, um, which is when we were twelve. And from that year onwards, Carla and I had basically been in the same class as well. But that was. We, I mean, in retrospect, I think we were really lucky because we got lucky that there were just enough kids who happened to be pseudo sensible, happened to so they could create a class of like twenty five kids, and um, and we were we were mischievous and we were downright horrible, but but still with good intent. Um, whereas whereas the rest of the rest of the classes were just horrible with no no positive <laughs> intent. So so yeah, we we used to get ourselves in trouble. We used to arrange fights between the local two local schools and just stuff that I'm absolutely mortified to talk about right now. And it was a, you know, there was an incident with one of my um, classmates getting hold of a, a gun, which don't come so easily in, mm -hmm. in the UK. And yeah, fortunately we managed to stay out of police trouble. But, uh, but uh, we used to do terrible things, Vicky, like, if you have, have you, do you remember Camden Lock? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, we used to go at lunchtime and push people into the canal. <laughs> That's terrible. I don't know why I'm laughing. <laughs> I mean, no one ever drowned or got got seriously hurt, but it's not very pleasant if you're. You, you know, just bump up, bump up, up, up into. Yeah, like you know, just like just random strangers. We it used to be like a dare. Hey, there's someone. Who, who, I dare you to push this person into the. That's terrible. I mean, and then you'd and then you'd run away. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what else would you do? I know there's a whole bunch of listeners who like think I'm this horrible person now, but, uh, no, but, but, it, but it was pretty, I mean, to be fair, it was pretty horrible. Um, I guess at the time though, Camden wasn't what it is now. And it was, you know, it was I, I don't think anyone, I didn't think anyone in Camden at the time was particularly nice anyway. So it was, it was probably a karmic thing where anyone who was there kind of des deserved it anyway. <laughs> so, or at least that's how I recon reconcile it in my head. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we used to do some pretty, pretty, um, yeah. Not things I would be happy if Jay got involved in. But you wouldn't be able to say anything because you did them yourself. No, no. I, 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 would, I would plead ignorance that I, I, <laughs> I was never involved in any, any well, such let's, thing. Let's, let's hope Jay never gets his hand on this episode. Uh, I'm sure he will. <laughs> and then after, after school, Vips, where did that take you next? Um, so miraculously, we all, we all survived our school, St. Richard's, um, you know, alive. And... Um, I was lucky. I I got, I, I basically got accepted into the London School of Economics. 
I think this was, the time was different. I, mean, I really do believe that we experienced something when I was growing up was probably like the end of when there was something that resembled equality of opportunity when it came to education. I, I really feel like that changed even after I graduated and it's probably got worse um, since. But at the time, um, you know, or maybe it was because I was from an ethnic background and didn't have enough, 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 you know, non-white kids applying to the LSE. So I got accepted or whatever, but, um, you know, I got accepted. I got, I did good grades in my, um, A-levels and, um, or good enough grades in my A-levels. And I went to the LSE and it was cool. It was, it, you know, made some really, really good friends, uh, economics and politics. So it's I think, I think, um, the, they called it a BSc Econ in government, but, hmm. um, because everything what, what, at the LSE has got an econ. Yeah, what, what uh, led you to study those? I was kind of stupid. Is that the way <laughs> I can describe it? Like every, everything about growing up, I, I, was always, I was always a hobbyist technologist. You know, I, I got my uncle to buy me, a, buy me my first computer, a VIC-20, when I was like 11 or something. And I'd, I'd, you know, I learned how to program myself back when you had to write in assembly. And, mm-hmm. and all of those sorts of things. And it was just, just, but just for fun, just out of you know, curiosity. So, but there was something about me when I was going through high school or what we call high school here, secondary school and A-levels where it's like, I could do anything that's mathematical in nature, engineering, math, science, and, but it would just be too easy. And I, to this day, I think, what an idiot. Um, but it was, I want to I do something I find hard. And so in my head, it was, well, I always found English hard. Yeah. So I should do more essay-based subjects, subjects that involve essays. So and back so, to the reading and writing. Back to the reading practice. and writing. So I did economics yeah. I did mathematics, economics, and politics as my A-levels, which then set me up for the degree that I ultimately ended up doing at the LSE, which was, which was BSc Econ in government. Yeah. And how did, how, good did that shape, how did that shape how you see the world? Oh, that was cool. Going to the LSE, you suddenly realized that, oh, you thought you were smart, but you're actually very average. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you change the pool, right? Suddenly the pool is much more fabulous. And... You know, and smarter and sharper and everything else and just more learned. And so I realized that, um, yeah, probably have to work a lot harder just to keep up in this environment. So that was, that was kind of interesting. But brilliant friends, um, um, really, really good friends um, made along the way. Um, and all, all very trying to do the right thing, thinking about philosophy, I guess, was, was a big deal when we were, when we were growing up. And on a more practical side, I worked through school. So I worked with, um, I worked at the Virgin Megastore and they had this really cool thing where, where um, most people- was that, were, the one in, was that the one in Piccadilly? Oxford Street. Oxford no, no, okay. no, at the time, the one in Piccadilly was Tower Records. It wasn't Virgin. Oh yeah, it was Tower Records. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, Oxford Street. And, um, and they had this thing, you know, you know, Branson and crew had this thing that if you worked 19 hours a week, then you would get a free travel card. Okay, now, a travel card in London is like, you know, at the time it was worth like £2,000 a year. Or and I still able to use the underground. Uh, yeah, underground and bus and everything. And so that job allowed me to basically pay for my travel. And back in the day, you know, um, when, when I got accepted into the LSE, I also got a grant. So you used to get a grant. So I, we didn't have to, my parents didn't have to pay any fees. And in fact, I got, I think it was about, a thousand pounds of just money, like a check for a thousand pounds you get given that you can spend on whatever you want. So it's essentially a scholarship. It's essentially a scholarship, although it was called a grant because it was from the government rather than from, mm-hmm. from anyone else. But it wasn't, but you didn't have to, well, I don't remember ever applying for the grant. It just kind of happened. So, so this is, it was different, different times. Those yeah, things yeah. went away, well, you know. Well, those are, those are the times when Britain became highly educated because everyone had one, two, three degrees. That's correct. Of that, because of that systemic way of funding it. And I, yes, and I wish we could get back to, I mean, to, you know, we talk about some of the systemic inequality issues we, we face across, you know, we've been talking about it in previous podcasts and so forth over the, in the, you know, in the US, but in the UK and so forth is, you know, maybe one of my core beliefs comes out there, which is we have to be willing to look at education in a totally different way than the way we look at it today, which is, which is educating workers to serve an economy. Like that, that, that has to be just be, has to be a very partial goal. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, I, I, I think systemic inequity will just get worse. 
It fascinated me when I first came to the UK in my early 20s when I was working with, with individuals at IBM who had um, history degrees or they were majors in ballet or whatever it might be, or geography. And it was such a different framework. It was studying for the joy of studying and learning as a discipline as opposed to the content you needed for your job. And um, there was huge value in that from what I could see. It taught the discipline of, of discipline. It taught the discipline of learning, of curiosity, as opposed to the subject being the means to the end that you needed for your job. And Well, think about that. I mean, we, we saw that. I mean, if you go back to, you know, our superstar performer years, right? Think about Quidditch years, okay? Then we never recruited off the basis of which course you did. We might, we may, we may have looked at which university you graduated from, mm -hmm. maybe, which maybe mm -hmm. wasn't right in retrospect. But we definitely didn't care if you we did, we didn't look for are you a graduate of X or are you a graduate of Y. We we just it was more the fact that you've got a degree from one of these places says that you can think for yourself and and you're there's a certain amount of self starting, yeah. you know you have a self starter starter nature, and. And I think my view is also, you know, it's an interesting dialogue and debate maybe for a future session, is in the UK, I, I still feel that there's something about the fact that when people don't think about, when they apply for jobs, think about graduates when they're applying for jobs, that they, it's almost like they are further up Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the point at which they apply for that first job because they're not worried about the need for that job to be able to give them healthcare, for example. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. as an example, and it's not. Yeah. I don't want to make this a, a. It's not a political thing. It's just more. Imagine what it does when you don't need to worry about your subsistence level of income, and you don't have to worry about your subsistence level of health. It allows you to be pickier and choosier about what, you what gonna you're going to do with your life, right? Yeah. And and I think here generally in the U.S., I find that people seem to come to that realization maybe a little bit later in their careers. Um, well, the way the way the system it struck is set up differently. Yeah, the way it struck me is moving across from the UK to the US is there's a completely different level of fear around survival. So in the UK, because you have that basic level of subsistence and health, even though it sucks to lose your job and you wouldn't live well, you know, it wouldn't be a good living at all. It isn't that same level of, am I actually going to survive? Whereas in the US, your job is tied so closely to your benefits. And here in California, yeah. you're at will, two weeks notice, all this kind of stuff that Nobody wants to take vacation. Nobody wants to be seen to be dispensable. Everyone wants to be always on because there's this massive fear if I lose my benefits, if I lose my job, I lose my benefits. And, and they're bloody expensive here as well. They're not easy to, to acquire. So everyone creates fake facades. And then we wonder why we have such problems with authenticity, right? Oh, but then we create an industry we... to try to create the authenticity. <laughs> so, so I, mean, I mean, there's a certain amount of, uh, I mean, it works. Yeah. I mean, the system yeah. works, but it is kind of like... Uh, at what cost? At what cost, yeah. Okay, before we go too deep down, down that rabbit hole, <laughs> let's pull us back up. So talk me through your superstar performer years. Um, so, I, <laughs> oh God, so I'm, I'm such a bad role model. So when I, when I, when I left, when I finished university, I didn't, I, I didn't do the, in the UK, they used to call it the milk round, which is, college, which is graduate recruitment. Don't know why they called it the milk round, that's what it was called. Um, but basically when companies shopped around and tried to, you know, take the best talent from colleges. And um, I didn't do any of that because I was too lazy, if I'm really honest. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and, and I think all I really wanted to do was um, just get a quick job, earn a bit of money, and then, and then go traveling around Europe a little bit. So um, I, I was working um, uh, part-time in the summer at a, at a technology company. It was a, think of it like a pre-Dell Dell company called Carrera Technology. And uh, I, was running, I was on tech support. So, you know, literally on tech support and ultimately then moved up to do some work in their R&D. But basically, that's where I cut my teeth. Customer services, technical support, um, and what at the time was disaster recovery. And network. I mean, so this is when, you know, this is when uh, people used to crawl underneath desks to wire, put cables into back of machines and, and, uh, and, and networking looked like, uh, you know, like a, like a file server somewhere in, under, under a table. Um, you know, there was no cloud per se. Internet was very much first generation. And uh, so disaster recovery looked like you have to get to, you know, a company's server went down and you go there and you're literally ripping out disk drives and changing motherboards and that kind of thing. Um, it's kind of where I cut my teeth. And then, and then about uh, after I came back from my traveling, um, uh, joined um, Arthur Anderson. Uh, in fact, I was, I was headhunted into Arthur Anderson. 
a lady by the name of Jane Randall, who I'll be eternally, eternally grateful to, sort of found me and, and I got recruited ultimately into uh, what was at the time, same as you, Arthur Anderson Business Consulting. Um, and that's where our paths kind of met, even though we didn't really meet. <laughs> Not really, not really. We knew of each other. Yeah, but that was great. That was great. You know, the, that whole, that to me was the real beginning of my superstar performer years. That was, you know, um, advanced technology group, business process, people in change, mastering all of the consulting competencies that just give you the perspective of, you know, travel, worked internationally. You know, it, it's such a, and with, to be honest, at the time anyway, world-class training as well. I, I, don't, I don't know that it exists in the same way um, anymore, but certainly at the time it was pretty impressive. Mm. And you had a fairly profound interview experience. Yeah, I don't know if we've got time for that one, but uh, but but I, I'll share this. I, my final interview was with uh, with a gentleman by the name of William Casey, who was um, head of technology globally at the time. And uh, I, I'm not going to tell the whole story because we haven't got time. But but he basically asked me in my sort of final interview after I'd speaking to 15 other people, whatever it was that we had to do. Um, he asked me about my um, five-year goals, which obviously I didn't have at the time. I didn't even thought about at the time. And um, uh, after going backwards and forwards over, over a week, I ended up uh, sharing some five-year goals with him that were more life-centric rather than just work-centric. And I, I, I believe it, uh, it played a small factor in the career coach that I was assigned, my manager, if you like, who, as we know, was Paramjit. And uh, that really shaped my career from that point forward, I was kind of, I felt I was being, there was like an invisible hand moving me to certain projects and certain orbits for the competencies that I was looking for. And then, you know, ultimately left with Paramjit to start, to, to start Quedis, um back in London, all those eons ago, which obviously you were a part of as well. So yeah, I, yeah, without, without that intervention by William, none of this, none of this would have happened, you know? So uh, yeah, nothing but gratitude. Um, and it's become a core part of our teachings at ThinkShift as well. So then we had the, uh, the early years of Quedis. What do you remember from those, Stress. From those days? <laughs> I, I remember having a lot of fun, a lot yeah, of fun, but, was a, but, but getting was, sick. You know, I was, I, I, it was, it was yeah, a big, big job. job. It wasn't, I think it was not so much of a big job, but it was more just, it felt like we, the, the, we grew so fast and we're responsible for so many people. And, and um, I think being the people person, I used, to, I used to take on a lot of that negative emotional energy when people were struggling or hurting or sick or not performing or whatever. And um, I just don't think I had the tools in my belt at the time to manage the pain around that. And ultimately ended up uh, yeah, getting pretty sick and in and out of hospital, uh, passing out in the office. I think you, you came with me once to the hospital, I think. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't good. Those were not good times, but, um, but I will say, that it was only, you know, in retrospect, I, I, I do think that there's something to be said for moments of suffering. You do learn a lot from moments of suffering, you know, assuming <laughs> you make it through them. And uh, I mean, I, I know for a fact that it not been for those experiences, there's simply no way that, that I'd be doing what I'm doing now. No way. Because I think it's so easy when you're young um, just to think you're invincible. You can do everything and there's no everything will be fine. You know, if it's, if it's a problem, just push through it, just work harder, study more, do more, you know, and um, yeah, t time has a way of catching up with you. It was a real humbling experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. Hum humbling and, uh, but also enlightening because um, what I realized was it probably doesn't help to measure yourself against the best qualities of other people, you know, and that's kind of what I was doing. I mean, I used to measure myself against the best qualities of Paramjit and the best qualities of Ben and the best qualities of you and the best qualities of others. And, and this is exhausting. <laughs> and also actually unwinnable. Yeah. And um, I think for me, that was the big, big realization that not only is it unwinnable, you're also doing damage because you're, you're depriving the environment of the best gifts that you have to offer. And that's then not helping everyone else either. And, um, that was a profound realization um, after a fair amount of sickness. And the headaches went away and you know, life, life got a lot more pleasant after that. And we were more successful as a business. And that, that to me is, you know, a very personal story as to why, you know, sometimes we talk about this self-care stuff and looking after yourself, putting your mask on and, 
if you're in your if you're in your early twenties or or maybe even your early thirties and and you, you feel like you're just wonderful and this is your time to shine and and you can do anything because you're invincible and then you say to yourself, you know what, be, be careful because because it may show up in terms of physical symptoms that you really don't want to have, you know. And uh, yeah, humbling experience. Yeah. What can I say? Yeah. And it's, it's reminding me of the parallels we're seeing these days with uh, Instagram and Facebook, that it's very easy to look at the outside of everybody else's life and what gets presented and compare it to the inside of how Absolutely. you feel. And that's a similar thing. It's not, it's not actually true. You've got to compare your insides to their insides, which you don't get to see. Because uh, you, you can also present shiny outsides, but it's not necessarily the truth. Well, it's, al it's, it's almost always why, you know, people who do the best job of creating a really, whatever you want to call it, happy, utopian, wonderful exterior tend to have the deeper issues with regards to, you know, self-confidence, yeah. self-efficacy, internal happiness, well-being. I mean, there's a, there is a correlation there. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's a challenge, especially when, when people, are, people are building audiences from nine years of age now through their, through their social networks and so forth. And that's, you know, we are, there's, there's pain in that. If you don't know how to, well, if you're not appropriately equipped from an emotional, social, and social learning point of view. So, so Quetus, you heard of that people, amazing growth, amazing results, amazing business that was built with people as the core from the inside out. That then took you to the U.S. Tell us about that journey. Yeah, so um, we, we, yeah, I ended up in the, in, in the U.S. Uh, to, to really help with a joint venture. Which at the time, it was called Highland Worldwide with, um, with North Highland here in the States. Um, obviously, uh, Quedis in the UK, there's a French company called Orisys, a German company called Horvath and Partners. And um, I don't know, it was kind of like a United Nations of professional services companies. Go, go, go forth and try to build one of those. And uh, you know, I got, I, to be honest, that was where I got to learn so much about how countries don't really want you to operate internationally. <laughs> just just the, the simple mechanics of, of, you know, visas, dealing with visas so people can travel you know, different countries and work in different countries. I mean, it's in taxation, you know, um, how unpleasant it can be from a person, you know, people point of view, how, you know, how expensive it is to make all those things work. And just driving, driving business across, in this case, five companies who were all very successful, but they were also all totally different, absolutely culturally different, you know, I mean, literally French, German, you know, Italian, <laughs> English, you know, American. And, and it's funny how no matter how, at an individual level, everyone was very understanding and trying to be open and so forth. At, at a company level, it's amazing how much the cultural stereotypes play out. I mean, they, they just play out, you know? Um, and what, you know what it did? It changed my perception of pace. It made me realize that when you want to try to do something that requires many cultures coming together, you have to accept that they cannot be done fast. And for me, it, literally, it was things that I thought would take a month took four months. Things that I took should, should take a week would take two months. And, and it's a, a very different uh, perspective on how well are you doing your job? How well are you uh, surviving? Now, I think that's also true for some of the challenges we face as a country right now. Is that these things we're trying to solve, they are not quick fixes. They are, they are long-term marathon running type fixes. And um, yeah, it made me relate to that. But then ultimately that process resulted in Jay being, my, my son was born here in the States when I was in 2007, before I came back to England, um, which, was, which was a blessing. We weren't sure we'd be able to have kids. So that was great, um, totally unexpected. And uh, kind of really gave me my affinity to the US really. That, that was my, that's, that's the reason why we came back to Atlanta of all places. Uh, afterwards, it was when the opportunity came and, and we, we, we chose to allow ourselves to be acquired by, by North Highland. It made sense for me to um, be, be, the, be one of the people that, that came stateside as part of that. And uh, yeah, so you know, a few years after that, we came back again. Um, we did the relocation, Vicky. It was funny. We did the relocation from, from the first conversation to actually having moved in six weeks. That is remarkable, Vips, with the amount of effort involved. That is quite... Remarkable. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. No. <laughs> I wouldn't Mine recommend it. stressful. Yeah. But I would also say that it's the kind of thing that you could take six months or a year to do, and it would still be stressful. That, that stress would just be extended over a longer period. Um, so it was like ripping the Band-Aid off. But, yeah. you know, 
we had to force out Jay's school and, you know, Carla had to leave a job. I mean, it was just, it was, there was pain in there. Um, yeah, let alone the bank accounts and the house. And oh the my God, you just forget about it details. at that point. You just spend, yeah. you just spend and you just, <laughs> you know. I think it's the kind of thing you, you can do with, um, with the, you know, high yellow mentality like I have, like a high, high risk tolerance mentality. But if you're, if you're someone who needs to plan and have their T's crossed and I's dotted, you just have to go, it's going to be okay. I'll get looked after. It will be fine somehow. And, you know, many people can't do that. It's, it's a hard thing to do, you know. And I'm lucky that Carla, Carla's also like that. Otherwise, we'd never be able to do it. Yeah. That brings us to the US, I guess. You know? US, yeah. So tell us about the, the journey then and the, the start of ThinkShift. Oh, wow. So, um, so you know, I, I did my sort of my two years at North Highland afterwards, and it was great. And, and to me, North Highland was very much a, it, it was more of a, I don't think North Highland ever got the best out of me after that transition because part of it was I, I was so culturally invested in what was Quedis and the integrated company wanted Quedis to be something else. And you know, North Highland UK was, was, had to be something different. That was hard for me at a personal level just because it had so much of my identity tied into it. Well, it was your baby. It was my baby. Yeah. Um, so, so I was probably, you know, less than the model employee, I guess, from that point of view, uh, you know, for North Highland at the time. But, um, you know, but it was also, for me, it was also just reorientating to a different country because now we'd moved. It wasn't just a gig. We'd moved and it was just hard. I didn't have my friends. I didn't have my network, didn't have my clients, didn't have, you know, all the people that I trusted that just weren't there, you know, and, you know, just, just establishing roots in a different place um, was challenging against the backdrop of not really enjoying what I was doing at the time. So I did my two years, um, left, you know, the right thing for everybody. I left and it was like, okay, I'm gonna take a year off. I'm just gonna just think about what I wanna do. And I remember it vividly, I started um, reaching out to clients that I'd worked with for, because by this point I had about 20 years in the world of business transformation. And I was like, I wonder how many of these actually worked, you know, and, and, and I, you know, as I started talking to clients, you know, just face to face, most, most of them had moved on as well. The question was simple. Did your organizations transform to the level and to the extent that which you believed they would at the point at which you were undertaking these projects? And the answer was basically five out of 25 said yes. <laughs> okay. Which, which for me was like, oh, oh dear, that's not a good way of looking at your, uh, your, you know, your, your career, your 20 years, you know, you've spent, you spent all this time and so many of them haven't worked. And it turns out that, that statistically, if you look at, you know, if you look at the research and you look at, you know, the HBR articles and, you know, business transformation is just tough and very few truly succeed. And, you know, less than, 10, less than 13% generally succeed. So, so then my, I guess my average was higher than 13%. So that was good. But, but, but it wasn't, it was, it was more of a, so why is, what makes the ones work? What makes some of them work and most of them not work, if you like? What, you know, is, is there any patterns there? And, and the sample was simple and it wasn't like, I didn't do a robust academic study, but I, I just did it based on the people that, and the clients that I'd worked with over, over time. And, and you know, as I did those interviews, what seemed to pop, or at least what seemed to pop for me was, um, if you don't shift the mindsets and behaviors of the people the, the, at the top, typically, but the, the key influencers, then it doesn't actually matter how much money you spend on technology, process change, whatever, the, the, the environment will recoil. Um, you know, at, the, at, the root, at the root of cultural change is the behavior shifting that needs to occur in, in the few. And, but then that was, well, is that even doable? So then I went and spent some time with a neuroscientist down in Florida who I got introduced to from a friend. And um, I was just, just learning about... Um, how much you can actually rewire. So the, the concepts which we now talk about as neuroplasticity, you know, how much can you actually rewire and what's the process of rewiring the way you think? And can you really do it? And what does it look like? And it was through that process that I realized, wow, it's actually, you can, but A, you have to want to, and B, you have to put some serious effort into it. But we can maybe shepherd that process for some people, particularly at different stages in their careers. Like, you know, what it takes to be a superstar performer is different from an awesome manager different to a top-notch executive. And then this kind of idea sprung that, well, we could sort of package that and make that a business enterprise in itself. And that's, that might be worth doing because then just, just think of the hundreds of millions that get spent on these things that are never going to work, even though the logic tells you it is. 
And you know, simple stuff like people will do these like revisioning. They'll put these new strategies out, new five-year plans. They'll do the full, you know, vision to mission to strategy to planning to execution cycles. And then what they'll do is the CEO or the president will still trust the very people that made them successful in the past. So these people are wired to do things the way they've done them before and they're indebted to them. So you can spend as much money as you like. The organization never pivots because those people never shift because they have no reason to because they've been, they've been programmed to believe it works. So, so anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying, you know, I, I sat down and started thinking about, okay, what would, what would the business model of something like that need to look like? And that's why we came up with this concept of leadership services and why it's so different from how most coaching companies tend to look at it. And uh, yeah, I mean, the rest you can go and look on the website, I guess. But, but that ultimately became, became the idea of ThinkShift. And then it was more about, well, I don't trust myself to do it on my own. I need Vicky because, because she keeps me on, on the right track. And I need someone like a Gordon because without someone like a Gordon will probably go bankrupt because I won't look after the money enough and, <laughs> and so forth. And um, yeah, for me, it was, okay, we're going to do it the right way with the right principles. We're going to get the right people at the beginning and that's it. And, you know, it's okay to be small as long as you're being impactful. And let's focus on being impa- impactful and helping create fabulous people into fabulous leaders and then the rest will figure itself out. And it does seem to do so remarkably it does it does seem to do so remarkably it certainly leads to a happier life so i would love you to tell the story of how you've come up with your personal mission for for seven fabulous people i think i have to do the cliff notes version vicky because it might take an hour otherwise but yeah. but yeah no this this um yeah this is a very personal story and it really goes back to my mother passing away um she died of breast, breast cancer in uh, yeah um, oh, sorry, oh, tearing up a little bit, about a decade ago. So it was 2000 and, gosh, I'm blanking on years, 2009. And uh, what, I, what I did was, I mean, she literally, she, 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 she it was very aggressive breast cancer. She died in, in a very short period of time. But I remember vividly, just before she died, she took me aside and said um, um, to me and my father that... Uh, you know, you need to take Vipul to India to do the Sartik because his soul's not at rest. <laughs> and, then, and then she died, literally a few minutes later. It was, she passed away. And, and I, you know, I, I've not been great at embracing the Indian side of my culture through my, through my growing up because I grew up English, I guess. Yeah. But um, so in my head, it was, oh, God, I'm going to have to go to India to do some stupid ritual. And there's, you know, Indians seem to have a ritual for everything. I'm a, I was very glass, glass half empty about this. Um, as opposed to glass half full about this at the time. Um, but uh, the, the, long and, the long and short of it was uh, uh, a couple of years later. This is one of those weird things you can only do at a certain time of year. It has to be in the, 50, in the lunar cycle immediately after Diwali, which gives you 15 days um, to go. And because my mother passed away on the fourth day, you had to do it on the fourth day. And you had to go to some sacred place where where, you know, sacred rivers converge and the water levels drop to a certain level to expose land. And I mean, it's just, you can't make this stuff up other than the fact that there's two places in India you can go and do this ceremony, apparently. So I went to do this thing, it was two years later, I think. It was 2011, I went. And um, so I went to this place and I went to our villages where, where my parents grew up and they are literally villages. And I met our priest, you know, like our, our guru, my Maharaj, as they're called. And... Uh, and I, I understood the symbolism of this. The basic idea was, was you'd go to this place and, and we did. And, you know, there's a fire, of course, you know, there's 100,000 other people, but you find your little spot, you, 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 you light a fire. And, and essentially what happens is that you go through a very reflective exercise of, of uh, the, the, um, the things that you remember about your parents and your grandparents. And the essential idea is, for you to surface qualities, characteristics that you liked or disliked or you found memorable. And this, um, this marriage would help you sort of place these things to uh, areas of your life. Um, uh, you've had that in your family for three generations, starting with your great grandmother, this kind of stuff. And, and it, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't know how valid it is. It certainly, it certainly put me in a very reflective place. And I did come out of it 
That, so the idea is to walk away from this thing with closure. You don't, from that point forward, the wisdom of my, of my parents' lifetimes or my mother's life basically gets distilled and gets passed down the bloodline. And then that soul can go and reincarnate. And I can start my journey to becoming an elder, right? That's a basic idea. Because, and, you, and you had no idea how long you were going to be there or what was going to happen to you. When well, you that, was just, they, that was just the initial journey. And then I was, we were leaving. We'd done on that. That's a one day thing, like four or five hours. We were leaving and I went to an ashram. I was ferried off in a boat to an ashram. I didn't know how long I was going to be there. Ashram was right there um, on the banks. And that's where I met my, what I now affectionately call my nine Jedi. And that, that was, I had no idea. I, I didn't even know I was going there. Um, and it was one of those, you know, how long will I be here? You will be here for as long as you need to be here. <laughs> what, will, what are you here to do? You will, you, you will discover what it is you're here to do. You know, it was one of those, if you want straight answers, it's terrible, terrible, terrible place to be. Um, <laughs> um, but but what, 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 what it was really was, I mean, it's a retreat, I guess, is the way out, you know, in English you could call it. And these guys, you know, they would, they were, they would, they would coach. It was a combination of coaching and meditation, a little bit of stretching, cooking for the poor. But they, you know, they, they would come and talk to you for an hour, hour and a half, and then disappear and leave you with something really profound. But in retrospect, and so when I did that thing with my mother, it was more just in our family. And then what this person did, or these, this group did, is in my head anyway, the way I remember it was they made me go through my, my, my memories from zero to five, five to 15, 15 to 30, that kind of thing. I was remembering, you know, the best analogy I can give is I was remembering things with a kind of clarity as when I, when I, if you go to a really dark desert, if you go to the middle of Arizona and you look up and you can see all sorts of stars that you can't see if you're living in LA, right? Um, but it was kind of like that. I was remembering events and people and all sorts of stuff from, from, from my life I'd just forgotten about, you know, particularly my maths teacher. But uh, that, that process ultimately, I, I got to about day four, day four, four and a half, and it was like, ah, I know why I'm here now. Uh, it just had an epiphany. That, what, that the common thread that seems to exist is I, I am just good and I, I, my talents are best served by helping really good people go and do good things more than they would do otherwise. And it was quite hard for me because part of that was acknowledging that it wasn't about making average people good enough. It was mm-hmm. about making, you know, it was kind of hard, right? It feels almost elitist. And I, didn't like to have, I didn't like how that sat, but, but, but I seem to have gifts that tend to get the best out of really good people. As, and I tend to get frustrated with people who are not that good in the first place, if you like, and as I was um, slightly obnoxious, but that's kind of how it felt. So anyway, to cut a long story short, they then bring out this kind of idea of, I guess, karma, this idea that the more you have to give, the more you have to give in order to, to earn your, this is my language now, not theirs, to earn the kind of credits through life that, um, make it a worthwhile existence because the idea behind life is to, in some way, shape or form to leave the planet in a slightly better place than you found it in some small way. And, um, and uh, you know, because Hindus believe in reincarnation, you know, the idea of coming back as a cockroach doesn't really appeal too much. <laughs> so uh, you know, the idea of the idea of kind of coming back, um, you know, for me, it was quite nice because it made me, it gave me some urgency, some sense of, hmm, well, there's a reason to do good in this life. Um, and whether you believe it or not, it almost doesn't matter, but it was, it was a nice theory or a nice, nice concept. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I get back from this experience. I, I know I know the answer, but I haven't, I haven't documented it yet. And then I remember New Year's Day after I got back and I was like, I've got to clear this out because my head's hurting, you know, it's been three or four or five months of percolation. And, um, and I sat down and I said, okay. I got to figure out what this means. I need a, I need a metric behind this. I need some way of crystallizing it. And I remember, I remember sitting down in front of a, um, after a fail, couple of um, failed attempts, sat down in front of a spreadsheet, and um, I said, well, "Okay, you know, how many people turned up to my mother's funeral?" Because she was one of these fascinating people who had lots of followership, despite never being like she was just a leader of people rather than a you know business leader or anything like that. She was a housewife, effectively, and it was whatever that number was, it was, you know, almost 2000 people. And then what I did was I, I remember saying, well, well, I need some kind of multiplying factor. Like, you know, what's the pay it forward factor? I'm pretty sure I put down five or six. I can't remember what it was. I think it was five. Um, and then I remember vividly saying, well, okay, I can't do a goal seat just yet. 
because uh, I remember that about 40 people had probably turned up to my funeral if I, if I was to die on that day. It was like 40, 1,980 something. That's a big gap. <laughs> a multiplication factor of five. And then, you, you know, I realized that for, for Excel's goal seek function to work, you had to give it a time, like over what period? There's a number that was missing. So I had to, I had to like plumb in like an estimated date, date of death. Right? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Rather morbid, right? But I had to give it a time, a time period. Then I hit the goal seek and I'll pop 6.84. And I remember 6.84 vividly. And that became, you've got to find and help seven fabulous people each year to go and do some good in the world or at least pay it forward five times. And if you can do that, then you'll be happy. That, 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 that's, that's it. 6.84 became seven fabulous people. And seven fabulous people became, um, I guess, think shift for me. And the, the, the idea is kind of baked in. And I guess there's a reason why we're doing a podcast called Be Fabulous, right? I mean, it's, it all comes back to that for me. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's, great. that's the story. Yeah, powerful, powerful story. I love hearing it every time I hear it. It brings chills to me. I absolutely love it. It's, it's very cool. And, and I think what I, would, what I would say is, you know, uh, the most amazing thing is, sure, I get, you know, I still get stressed out from time to time and I get tired and get frustrated or whatever. But at the end of the day, um, I'm happy. Work doesn't feel like work. You know, it, it's, a, it's, it's, just, it's just being. And that's, that's very cool. That's very cool. It doesn't mean that sometimes, I wonder what we, it doesn't mean the competitive side of me is gone. I'm still pretty competitive. I still want to win. Still want to do cool things. Still want to, but, but deep down, yeah, all right. You know, you win a bit more, win a bit less, you know, happy. And I think that's kind of, that is a very cool thing. Yeah. It is. Yeah, I share that. It's, I always say I never have to work another day in my life because what I do is not work to me anymore. That's right. It's what I'm supposed to do on the planet. The magic. Yeah. I think people see that though. They see that when they work with us. They feel it. Yeah. Maybe not see it. They feel it. Yeah. And they um, can feel our purpose of doing something real, yeah. not just for money. So Vips, last question. If you had to go back and talk to your younger self. Oh, I wish you would didn't wouldn't do this one. <sighs> what would you tell younger Vips? Seven year old Vips, what would you tell them? I find that so hard because I wonder if those things are the very things that you if you didn't have, would change who you became, if you know what I mean. Um, but I guess I'd probably say is just learn patience a bit, a little bit easier, a little bit quicker. I, I, I can be quite impatient because my brain seems to work quite fast. And um, yeah, I, if I could go back, I would definitely say be more patient and m maybe a little bit less impulsive and a little bit more uh, intentional. I learned about being intentional probably in my 30s. Um, and I wish I'd learned it in my 20s. Oh, Vips, this was magical. Thank you so much. Are we, uh, are we ready for a Vicky challenge? Go for it. <laughs> All right, guys. So your Vicky challenge for the week is uh, what would you tell your younger selves? Take 90 minutes, get a pen and paper, and without giving it too much thought, just go back and think to yourselves, what would you tell your younger selves about the way life has turned out? And that's it. And with that, have a great week and be fabulous. Thanks again, Vips. Thank you. <laughs>